Welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. Firstly, though rare, brain tumours in children are still vital to diagnose. But how can you tell what should be a red flag? This week's clinical review sets out to answer that, and we're joined by one of the authors to talk about her recommendations. It might be reassuring for um, people working in primary care to, to, to know that in a cohort study we did, um, no child who was diagnosed with a brain tumour had just headache alone at diagnosis. So it's always headache plus something else. But before that, too much medicine is fast becoming a BMJ mantra. In the latest of our salvos against overdiagnosis and overtreatment, we aim at polyps. Not all polyps are created equal and there are many overlapping classifications. The authors of this week's analysis article are worried that screening for one type is feeding into treatment of another, and that's causing harm to patients. Helen MacDonald, the BMJ's analysis editor, finds out more. So we're now joined by Geir Hoff, who's a professor of gastroenterology, um, to talk about his paper on colorectal polyps. Um, and this doesn't sound like the most thrilling of topics, unless you're a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon, but it seems that they're very much back in the spotlight again, um, thanks to uh, colorectal cancer screening. So Geir, tell us, tell us how you got involved in this. Well, the thing is that um, I've been in this game for quite a few years and uh, I was uh, on the scene already back in the 1980s when uh, the um, colorectal adenomas, you know, potential precursor of uh, colorectal cancer was uh, introduced or sort of reintroduced into the the modern age. And uh, it was quickly decided that um, uh, because of the danger of colorectal cancer, uh, all adenomas should be removed. But um, we didn't really have all that much information about the the actual risk for development of cancer. So uh, as the time passed on and decades, uh, then we decided, well, the uh, guidelines, they were probably too strict and uh, they've been slackened a bit with the, with, with the years and uh, it uh, was probably not... Uh, not uh, necessary to have surveillance as frequently as we decided initially, etc., etc. So, um, uh, as uh, time has passed, we recognize that probably as much as 95% of uh, polypectomies, that is, removal of these polyps, is a waste of time in terms of preventing cancer. Mm. But uh, there's not really a big danger with that because uh, the risk of uh, doing harm is, is very, very small indeed. How do you mean? Because uh, removing them is easy, or it's easy because most of these adenomas they're situated in the in the left half of the or the, of the large bowel, where the wall is uh, thick, and uh, these uh, adenomas are very often stalked. You know, they have a sort of slender stalk, so it's uh, the risk of removing them them is is uh, is, is very, very small in terms of bleeding or or making a, um, a puncture in the in the bowel wall. Yes. So, um, but now. Uh, history seems to sort of <clears throat> uh, hit us again, <laughs> and we have 
a new experience with a new a new uh, kid on the block, and uh, that is the so-called uh, sesalcerated polyps, which until quite recently were considered quite harmless and not having a potential to develop into cancer. Um, for primary care doctors, tell us a bit about the sesalcerated polyp. What are their characteristics? What makes them different to adenomas? Mm. Well, these are these are usually situated in the in the right half of the colon. Uh, in the proximal colon, and uh, they're very often flat, and they're often covered with with uh, mucus. So, um, and they have a pale uh, pink color. So, being flat, covered with mucus, and uh, being pale pa- uh, pale pink, they're often very sort of difficult to to to, to um, distinguish from the surrounding mucosa, not easy to to, to discover. Mm. Um, but when they were discovered, they, they uh, of course, we, uh, we we took biopsy to get a histological verification of what kind of polyp this was, and they were characterized and defined as so-called hyperplastic polyps, which uh, does not, uh, which is different from from adenomas, and uh, these were not considered to uh, to have a potential to develop into into cancer. So. We, we we left them alone, or if we removed them them for histology, then there was certainly not any any indication for having a surveillance program for these patients. But now we we have discovered that uh, on a molecular basis there are some um, common characteristics uh, with uh, cancer. So uh, as sort of genetic uh, research has developed, we we, we have found these uh, common characteristics. And then the the idea have um, come up that um, that uh, maybe these are not as innocuous and uh, maybe maybe we should um, address these type of polyps uh, more seriously than we've done so far. And um, uh, we all, there have also been some cases where there have been found cancer within these polyps, but these are cases, separate uh, small sort of case history uh, reports. And um, we don't know very much about the natural history of these uh, polyps. The danger, the risk here is that um, that uh, the risk of perforation, for example, is higher than for the adenomas back in the 80s uh, because these are sessile. They don't have a, very often don't, they don't have a defined stalk and the bowel wall is thinner. So... Uh, so and uh, so, when we now recommend to remove these polyps, we uh, we do that from the belief of, of doing good, of course, but we cannot really say uh, what the benefit in the long run will be. Mm-hmm. So uh, so um, this is uh, a bit unfortunate, I think, particularly in terms of screening. Um, so um, screening is a, is a very, very very neat balance between harms and benefits. And if the harms outweigh the benefits, or if you don't even know the benefits, sort of in in terms of figures, then uh, this may this sort of change of guidelines may actually tilt uh, the um, decision against uh, attending for for a screening. Um, and uh, the point here is that uh, the the requirements for research documentations uh, are really higher for uh, screening than for ordinary clinics. It's um, it's a bit sort of strange, but uh, that is sort of the the, uh, the bottom line of uh, of uh, much of this because um, a screening works, 
but um, yeah, I mean, potential uh, screening attendants, they don't really want to risk any harm by attending to be uh, secured or be informed that they are actually healthy because the, the um, average population uh, that we address for screening, they are by definition uh, healthy. Mm-hmm. So um, being exposed to harms to um, be confirmed that you're healthy is not really a very good issue. Yeah, so what, what are the You said the risks of removing a sessile polyp are higher than from removing an adenoma, um, and that relates to the piece of the bowel that it's in and the characteristics of the polyp itself. So what, what harms might come about removing a sessile polyp compared to the more straightforward adenoma? Well, um, there are... There, there's, there's some reports on this, of course, and um, it seems that um, uh, for ordinary <clears throat> colonoscopy screening, the risk of um, and polypectomy, the risk of, um, of perforation or um, bleeding is about um, one, one in thousand, um, or one in one or one in five hundred, yes. and you can more than. Um, multiply that by 10 when it comes to the right-sided sessile lesions. So um, that's a sort of comparative uh, figure here. So this, what you're saying is this might alter that that delicate balance you were talking about um, in terms of weighing up the pros and cons of of giving colorectal screening. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you see as the way forwards? What, What solutions could there be here? Well, I think that when we're now sort of uh, suddenly from one day to the next decided that uh, these sessile polyps, they are innocuous to decide that we have to remove them. Uh, well, then we're in a, in, a, in a time of events here when we could do um, inside the randomized studies and uh, see what what is actually the, the risks and benefits here. And we believe that Sessile-serrated polyps, they pass through a stage of dysplasia before they um, eventually enter into cancer. So if you could just observe these uh, polyps uh, in a randomized fashion, of course, one arm with removal, as uh, current U.S. guidelines tell us, and the other one with um, with close surveillance and uh, observation with biopsies and um, let's call it virtual um, uh, virtual histology, that is, um, um, advanced um, uh, high-definition uh, uh, microscopy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which is, may be a part of the uh, colonoscopy examination. So uh, technically advanced um, uh, colonoscopy combined with um, uh, biopsies and close uh, uh, observation um, in the one arm and um, and removal in the other arm. And of course, you can also randomize when it comes to surveillance uh, intervals here to to learn about um, the the natural history and and probably then hopefully uh, prevent history from the 1980s to repeat itself. Absolutely. And how does that idea go down in the colorectal community? Is that something that that surgeons and gastroenterologists are, are calling for, or is this quite a controversial? Um, suggestion that you're making? 
Well, these these uh, guidelines that have emerged from the U.S. Um, gastroenterology community are fairly new, so I, I don't think that uh, the European community or gastroenterologists have sort of reacted uh, very, very very much yet, mm-hmm. and they are sitting on the fence, uh, I think, and uh, are working on uh, the data that may have have in, in their databases when it comes to serrated polyps, um, but. Um, this was the, my main intention with writing this paper, to um, to get a debate on it and uh, and um, prime the uh, gastroenterology community to think in different terms than we did in the 1980s. And probably that it seems like history may may repeat itself now. Uh, I wanted to prevent this uh, by by um, by priming the community through this paper. Gerhoff, thanks very much. And that article is available online on bmj.com and in print this week. If you're interested in overdiagnosis and overtreatment, check out our page dedicated to that. bmj.com hyphen to hyphen much hyphen medicine. Now, how do you spot signs of brain tumours in children and young adults? And what do you do once you suspect it? Sophie Cook, BMJ Clinical Reviews Editor, finds out more. I'm joined on the phone today by Dr Sophie Wilne, consultant in paediatric oncology at Nottingham University Hospitals Trust and one of the authors of this week's BMJ Clinical Review on identifying brain tumours in children and young adults. Sophie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you um, and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Sophie, how often will a GP come across a child or young person with a new diagnosis of brain tumour? Um, that's a really important question. And actually, the challenge is that this is this is unusual. This is rare for people working in general practice um, because kids are, as we know, um, usually usually well. Um, if you look at the statistics or the, for children with malignancy as a whole, um, then the average size GP practice, so it's a practice with sort of four or five partners in it, will see a child with a new malignancy about once every five years. Um, And if you then look at how malignancies are distributed throughout children, about a quarter of those malignancies will be brain tumours. So not very frequently, but frequently enough for it to be something that um, it's, it's worth knowing about and thinking about if children present with the relevant symptoms and signs and history. You explain in your review how there are multiple types of brain tumours that can occur in children. Are there any known risk factors that GPs should be aware of to help flag up the children that are most at risk? Absolutely. Um, Generally speaking, there are not risk factors. Um, The exception to that is children who've got inherited genetic syndromes that can be associated with an increased risk of tumour. And the ones that occur, the commonest ones that will be seen and recognised in primary care are neurofibromatosis, type 1 and type 2, and tubular sclerosis. So if you have a a child that presents who has a family history of those diseases or indeed has clinical features suggestive of those diseases, that should definitely lower your threshold for consideration of a tumour and, and, and for referral for further investigation. Something that parents often question doctors and GPs about is radiation exposure and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. You do mention in your review the links between radiation and yeah. brain tumours. Um, this 
certainly been an increasing body of evidence published over the last year or so showing that there is an association between having medical CT scans and development of subsequent malignancies. It's a small increase in risk, but it's a recognisable increase in risk, um, and therefore we need to be prudent in our use of CT scanning and only use it where necessary. Um, there is also obviously a risk of developing second malignancies if you've received um, therapeutic doses of radiotherapy to treat a previous malignancy, and as we treat children sometimes at a very young age, um, we do see that occurring later on in life and, in, and, and into adulthood. Um, apart from that, there's no other identified radiation risk which leads to the development of tumours in childhood and young people. Great. Let's think a bit about the presentation of brain tumours. I suppose the major concern of GPs is, as you said, brain tumours often present quite insidiously and symptoms can mimic other benign conditions in the early stages. And I suppose the classic example of, of the sort of symptom that GPs worry about is perhaps headache. I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about what symptoms should GPs be most concerned about? When should they worry about a possible underlying diagnosis of brain tumour? I think it is really difficult. And I think the things that we have demonstrated through the studies we've done in this area is actually um, the important things to look out for are persistence of symptoms um, and accumulation of symptoms. Um, headache is obviously one of the most common symptoms all of us experience from time to time, and one that presents hugely to primary care and you know, causes a large amount of work for them. Um, it might be reassuring for um, people working in primary care to, to, to know that in a cohort study we did, um, no child who was diagnosed with a brain tumour had just headache alone at diagnosis. So it's always headache plus something else, and that plus might be other symptoms and signs that occur, or it might be a headache, which is a very worrying history of raising cranial pressure, such as one that's waking somebody at night, or such as one that's associated with nausea and vomiting at night. Um, in terms of trying to distinguish the child that needs investigation from the majority will be fine, it is, there's no, unfortunately, very easy answer, but it's the... Um, things that always apply to, to medicine and particularly apply to paediatric medicine is if children are coming back in backwards and forwards with the same symptoms, if parents are particularly concerned about something, that should be a trigger for further investigation and considering whether there's a serious underlying um, diagnosis. With respect to picking up brain tumours, um, I think in terms of an easy screening thing, then you need to think about symptoms and signs of raised intracranial pressure. So has the child got a headache? Has the child got vomiting? Has the child particularly got symptoms occurring at night or in the morning, but there isn't often so obvious a diurnal variation in children and young people as there is in adults. And then to think about the other bits that can be affected by a tumour. Um, broadly speaking, that's eyes and motor. So what's the child's vision? If they're old enough to assess fields, what are their visual fields? What are their eye movements like? Have they got normal eye movements? Have they got nystagmus? Have they got a squint? Is their acuity good? Can they see? And then in terms of their motor movement, um, particularly coordination gets affected. So what's their coordination like? Can they still run? Um, if they're little children, have they gone off their legs? If they're older children, simple things like what's the handwriting like? Um, what are their skills at computer games are like? You know, there can be relatively subtle changes which indicate a reduction in coordination. Um, and then finally, look at their growth and look at the development because tumours can affect growth and development and pubertal progression. So if you want a sort of a, a screen to could this child have a brain tumour, if you've thought about raised intracranial pressure symptoms, looked for motor problems, eye problems including vision and eye movements, and then looked at growth and development in comparison to how they were and their age-appropriate norms, if all that is normal, 
then that's pretty reassuring. If anything is abnormal in that area, then that should probably trigger referral for further investigation. Okay. In your review, you talk a bit about the National Institute of Clinical Excellence red flags and also the diagnostic accuracy of these. I wondered if you'd like to comment a little on that. Essentially, they occur, the red flags occur in young people with brain tumours and children with brain tumours, but as we've already commented, they also occur in children who don't have brain tumours and therefore the um, specificity of them for identifying whether or not a child has a brain tumour is very low. Um, If it's accompanied by recurrent attendances with one of those red flags and the specificity um, and sensitivity improves a little bit but it is still poor. So whilst there's no doubt those symptoms occur in children with brain tumours, they also occur in other children and so it's much more looking for a pattern of symptoms which would indicate a lesion in a specific part of the brain rather than the symptoms individually which would make me concerned and looking for people who are presenting and things that are not resolving or things that are not all progressing. Um, uh, the cohort study we, we looked at also demonstrated that children develop additive symptoms so a child might start off with perhaps just headache and vomiting but by the time they were diagnosed also have eye problems and also have coordination problems so certainly any child who's coming backwards and forwards and developing additional problems should raise concerns but as should any child who's got persistent symptoms that are not settling absolutely okay so if we think about a gp who's in their surgery who's worried about a possible diagnosis of brain tumor what um investigations are appropriate in the community if any and how should that gp go about referring this child on it depends a little bit about how worried you are if you you know have a high index suspicion that a child has a brain tumor so they've got early morning headache, vomiting, they're ataxic, then that child needs to be referred that day to local paediatric services and will need to be imaged that day. And actually the only way to rule in or rule out a brain tumour is to do an uh, CNS imaging, ideally an MRI scan or a, a CT scan if MRI isn't available, which obviously needs to be done in secondary care. So there's no easy test to do in primary care and there's no point doing blood tests or things like that because that won't add to your, your, your management plan. I think the much, much more difficult situation is what to do if you're concerned about a child who could possibly have a brain tumour in their differential diagnosis and the example in that situation might be a child who comes in to see you has had a headache for a couple of weeks and in whom maybe the headache has woken them up once or twice at night but is growing and developing normally on examination is normal Um, and those children probably needed to be reviewed within a relatively short interval so within two weeks or so making sure nothing is changing and nothing is progressing and if those symptoms persist or indeed if they develop additive symptoms then they should be referred to um, secondary care and that referral if the child is well could potentially go to a urgent paediatric you know be seen that week type of appointment um, or indeed be seen that 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 day um, these children shouldn't really be referred to be seen within the next two to three months because if they do have a tumor then obviously things can progress quite quickly I think really certainly in, in my practice in any medical practice if you once you're concerned that a child might have a tumor actually most of our response is to pick up the phone and discuss it with somebody and I think that's because these are small numbers of children this is probably what we should do um, and the speed at which they need to be seen then can be made on a decision between the referring doctor and the person who will be assessing them at the other end. Yeah that's good advice so if there are any concerns you know don't be afraid to pick up the phone and discuss with a specialist. Um, Once a child has had the diagnosis of brain tumour confirmed can you talk us a little bit about the treatment options and how you go about deciding the plan for that child? 
treatment is determined by the tumour location and the tumour type. And so there's a huge number of different tumours that can occur in the brain, some which are highly rapidly growing, have the capacity to metastasize, require treatment with resection, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, some that are slow growing and rarely metastasize and require resection only. So treatment is very much determined by what the histology is of the tumor is um, and what the and whether or not it's a surgically resectable tumour. If you think about some of the common tumours that occur in children, um, one, one, the most common tumour we see is something called a pilocytic astrocytoma, which is a grade 1 um, astrocytic tumour. It occurs um, throughout the brain. If it's in a resectable area of the brain, so in the cerebellum, um, and it is completely resected, often children don't require any other treatment other than resection. Um, if it is an unresectable area of the, uh, in the brain, so these often occur in the optic pathways um, and interfering with function, then we would use treatment with chemotherapy. Um, we occasionally use radiotherapy for this type of treatment, but generally speaking, we like to try and avoid radiotherapy, um, particularly in young children, because it has significant um, long-term side effects in, the, in, these, in, our, in our patient population. Conversely, if you look at one of the commonest, frankly, malignant tumours we see, such as medulloblastoma, um, that occurs in the cerebellum. It is often resectable, but not necessarily always. That always has surgery to debulk or resect, um, and then is followed by chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, so the treatment is very much varied according to um, the disease type. So if a child is going through chemotherapy or radiotherapy, they'll obviously be under the care of their specialist team. But what would you advise GPs need to be on the lookout for during treatment or do to support the family to help yeah. children get through this stage? It's really important to maintain links with GPs. Um, good practice and certainly what, what we try to do, um, not necessarily achieve every time, is to contact the GP within a, you know, 24, 48 hours of a child receiving any kind of tumour diagnosis. And that's partly so they can provide support and partly so they have the information if the family come to see them within, within the diagnostic period. Um, practical medical support for complications of treatment will be usually done by the um, <clears throat> treating centre, um, particularly if the child is on chemotherapy because obviously there's risks of febrile neutropenia and sepsis in association with that. Um, straightforward things is no child is immunocompromised should be vaccinated so it's, we tell the families that but it's important to maybe put a flag about that against the child's care um, unless specifically advised to by the oncology department um, the exception to that is we like all patients to have a flu vaccine unless there's contraindications um, with respect to the flu vaccine though and other vaccines we don't like family members to have um, live vaccines this is a risk of transmission so the fluenz vaccine which has just become available for young children now um, shouldn't be given to family contacts of children who are undergoing immunosuppressive treatment. Um, lots of support is needed for the families in this situation. It's an absolutely devastating situation. Not only are you having to cope with the fact that your child has had a life-threatening diagnosis, um, there is disruptions to family lifestyle, there's disruptions to work. Often the parent has to at least step out of work if both are working um, or sometimes resign from their job in order to care for the child who's unwell. If there's siblings in the family, then it's very difficult for them um, because obviously attention is often shifted to the ill child and they have to fit around their needs. So being there as a supportive role and a supportive ear is very important. And also um, 
depending on how response the children, if children don't respond to treatment and if children enter a more palliative care of their treatment, um, primary care is absolutely crucial in helping us manage that. And if there, if there is already a good relationship established with the family and the patient prior to reaching that stage of the illness, um, that can be very useful and very therapeutic and very helpful for the family. Um, and often, even in children who don't, um, you know, go on to require palliative care, they sometimes often have long-term disability or rehabilitation requirements. And again, the involvement of the, the GP in that and in managing ongoing problems and helping coordinate liaison with additional services is absolutely vital. Um, so we would keen for GPs to be involved throughout the whole care pathway as much as they want to. We would certainly um, aim to communicate effectively with primary care. And again, you know, all of us would welcome phone calls and questions. If we get rung up by somebody who's interested and wanting to know what's going on, we're always delighted to talk about um, what we're doing, as, as I'm demonstrating now. <laughs> Great. And finally, Sophie, what are the key messages that you hope GPs will take away from this review? I think the key messages are that Serious illnesses, one of which brain tumours, do happen in children and young people. Um, I think because so many of the children and young people all of us see are well, um, it's sometimes we have our threshold for worrying about serious illness too high in this population. Um, I think with respect to brain tumours, um, things to worry about are symptoms and signs as listed in the review, um, but essentially Symptoms and signs suggesting raised intracranial pressure or those affecting the visual system and eye movements, those affecting the motor system and those affecting growth and development. If a child presents with a problem that could be due to a brain tumour, then your quick MOT assessment is look at vision, look at eye movements, look at motor movements and coordination, look at growth and development. And if you're worried, pick up the phone. Um, we recognise this is not easy. Um, we are definitely getting better at improve and picking up these children quickly. And we know that if we pick up children more quickly, um, whilst we might not necessarily affect the outcome for very malignant tumours, certainly for children with less aggressive tumours, we can get them through treatment in better nick with less disability long term. So it's really important to do that. Sophie, thank you for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week, finally, with that story about prions in the UK population. Apologies for people who've been waiting for that variant CJD update. If you've enjoyed this podcast, or at least found it interesting, the BMJ isn't our only one. Check out the rest at podcasts.bmj.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>